Grab your Bibles, uh, turn them on or open them up to Colossians chapter 1. That is where we have been the last few weeks, and that's where we're going to be for a little while longer. And we're so excited about it. Uh, As you know, uh, with some of the things that we have been preaching about this year, kind of this is us and who we are as a church is being rooted and established in Christ. And we are taking some time out to uh, just root ourselves in God's Word and do some kind of deep diving into a powerful, very important uh, letter. And maybe you don't know that some of the New Testament, most of it is letters that were written uh, by a guy who went by the name of Paul or Saul. And uh, he, uh, being this incredible missionary, took the gospel uh, to his generation at the time. And one of uh, the things that he would do is he would go to an area, preach the gospel, establish a church, he would kind of raise up leaders, and then he would move on to the next area. But uh, just with his love for the churches that he had, he would write letters of encouragement to them. And this is a kind of a similar thing that's happening in this letter to the Colossian church. Uh, Paul didn't start this one. It was started by another guy by the name of Epaphras. Paul is actually in prison for preaching the gospel. And Epaphras, having started this church, went to go and visit Paul in prison. And he went to tell Paul about what had happened in this town. And he was just, uh, it was such joy telling Paul about how the gospel took root, how many people have been saved. But he also went to talk to Paul about some of the issues and concerns that this church was facing. And so in response to what he heard from Epaphras, Paul writes this letter of encouragement to this church. And I think there's some things that we could learn as a church out of what Paul is saying and encouraging uh, these believers. You see, there were two major kind of pressures that this church was facing. As much fruit as they were experiencing as a church, as much joy as the gospel was going out to people were hearing about them, they were under threat from two areas. And the one was they are in a kind of Greco-Roman town. The town of Colossians doesn't really exist anymore. Uh, It's now in modern day Turkey, but it was under Roman rule and had Greco kind of major Greco-Roman influences. And so when it came to worship, it was like, you can worship anything. Just don't say what you're worshiping is the one true thing. So uh, there were a pantheon of gods that were worshipped, multiple temples that people could go and worship, multiple gods that people could go and everybody kind of had their God that they worshipped and they were free to go and do that. They just weren't allowed to say that whoever they worship was the number one thing and the one true thing. And so one of the major pressures that this church was facing was pressure from people saying, worship Jesus, that's okay, but he's just a God like the rest. They were under real pressure from that. But also in the town, there were some uh, Jewish converts to Christianity. And they uh, were kind of coming into the church. And these kind of Greco-Roman people that had got saved were now under huge pressure from uh, this Jewish contingent in the church by going, it's amazing that you believe in Jesus, but you need to show your complete devotion by obeying everything in the Old Testament. You're not truly saved until you, if you are male, are circumcised. And now there's a huge kind of concern and confusion in this uh, growing church by going, is Jesus just a God like the rest of the gods that we see here? Do we need to adopt all of these other practices that we've not been taught? And so you had on the one hand this like nominalistic uh, kind of religion that 
Worship what you want to. It's not that serious. It's just a God among many. Kind of diluting who Jesus really is. And, and this pressure here going, Jesus isn't enough. You need to add on all of these things and kind of missing how Jesus is the full fulfillment of the law. And these two pressures... And Paul's going to give them some real encouragement in the passage that we're going to read on how you're going to navigate this kind of nominalism, this kind of diluting of Jesus, and this kind of hyper-religious obedience. Jesus is only going to love me. God's only going to love me by, by, by what I do. And the way I earn God's favor is my obedience to all of these laws. And he's going to help us navigate that because... That kind of sounds familiar to our society. And I love, Tim Keller uses this phrase. Uh, he, he calls it like Christian inoculation. And we know uh, kind of vaccinations and flu shots. And, and again, I'm not a doctor, so don't kill me over this. But when someone goes for a vaccination, there is a little bit of the thing that you're being vaccinated against in the injection. And you get just enough of it so that your body develops a resistance to it. And so in the society that we have, where so many people are turning away from the church is because you've got people who have been exposed to this nominalistic form of Christianity. Where people say they believe in Jesus, but the way they live is just a God. And you know, I'm not gonna give you the names of all the gods that they worshiped in the town of uh, Colossae, but it was ultimately money, sex, and power. And in our society, those are some of the things that we uh, drive so much of what we do. And we say we worship Jesus, we say we love Jesus, but if there had to be a true audit of our lives, I wonder where Jesus would actually rank by the way that we live our lives. And people have been so exposed to that that there's almost like an inoculation because people have gone, well, I've tried Christianity and all I've already seen is this like, people just kind of just with their lips say they love Jesus, but their lives reflect no change. And on the other side, it's, we've kind of been exposed to these like zealot Christians you know, don't put up Christmas trees and, you know, just kind of are so extreme and, you know, don't swear and, you know, just like kind of make that their evangelism kind of agenda by going, oh, I'm a Christian, don't say that. I'm a Christian, don't do that. I'm a Christian. And they're all about the rules. And so then the way that they go to God is going like, God, I have to love you by doing this and doing this. And then they get angry and disillusioned with God because, well, I did all of what he asked me to do and, you know, my life still is hard and, and, and the things that I wanted didn't come through the way I wanted them to come through. And so people's perception of the church is one of those two dangers. And as well, we're under threat the whole time of those two things ourselves. And the answer to that and the way we navigate that is to be fully alive. And the only way people are gonna see Jesus and the, the true Jesus is to be fully alive to him. And so we are going to read what Paul uses to encourage the church in this. And so the five verses that we're going to read, uh, people call this the Messiah poem. Every now and again in Paul's writing to churches, he includes kind of pieces of, of writing that 
uh, we've come to realize that this was some of what the early church used as hymns, as songs, things they would have recited and used to encourage each other, kind of like some formalized things. Uh, we now have Bethel and Hillsong, uh, and this is what people call the Messiah poem. We're gonna look at it uh, in two parts or two stanzas, and uh, we're gonna get into the first few verses. So uh, Colossians Chapter 1, verse 15 to 17. Have it with you. Uh, if you have Bibles, underline, but it is also going to be up on the screen behind me. And so Paul's going into this poem, and uh, this would have been recited or spoken out, and it's so exciting that this is what the early church would have done. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn uh, over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Now there's a word in there that throws people off straight away and causes a lot of issues uh, for people kind of outside the church, which is this word firstborn. They're quite confused. Well, you say Jesus is God, but there's this word firstborn. What's going on here? And just to kind of give some clarity, uh, the word that is used in the original language that we get the word firstborn from here, we also get the word prototype or template. And it's quite interesting. What he's doing here in this poem is, is establishing position. Because what people struggle with is they go, you know, I'm, I'm happy to go, Jesus was a good moral teacher. I'm happy to go, Jesus uh, had some wise things and uh, there's things that I can learn from his life, like the way he kind of helped the poor and the way he loved others. And so I'm so happy with all of that. So yeah, go ahead with everything you believe about Jesus. You know, good teaching, wise man, moral, all of those things. I'll even give it to you that he was somehow like a little bit superhuman. But people really struggle with when you put the line in the sand and go, but Jesus is fully God. That somehow in the person Jesus, the fullness of God dwelt. And this is what Paul's establishing here because the way you kind of get away from the nominalism and that Jesus is just a, and this kind of hyper religious thing that we have to kind of obey him before he loves us is to get to the place where we understand that in everything, Jesus is first. And this is what Paul's doing in these verses where he's kind of just up front, lying in the sand. When you think about Jesus, you think about the fullness of God. Not a God, because everything is different. Everything changes when all of a sudden you go, Jesus is God. There's a difference between creation and the creator. We give uh, far more credits and the award goes to the person who uh, created the invention. The award doesn't go to uh, the invention. There's something different about uh, the creator over creation. We see that in Genesis chapter one, right? Let us create God in our image. Right in the beginning, we see a plurality with creation. There's more than just one thing going on at creation. And that is what Paul is really driving home here. Jesus is the fullness of God. He is the prototype from which all of creation comes from. He is the template. Really important to see what's going on here. Next verse, verse 16, follows on from that. For in him, 
all things were created and all things have been created through him and for him. The other day, um, my family, we went out on uh, a butterfly kind of field trip. Uh, We went with the butterfly experts and we went up high into some mountains to catch and identify um, butterflies. A wonderful experience if you're thinking that is the nerdiest thing um, I have ever heard. Uh, In our country, we have uh, just under 800 butterflies in South Africa. The entire UK has 62 species of butterflies. We have just under 700, just a nerd fact for you right there. And as we were engaging with this butterfly expert, one of the questions came out is, is there something significant to the coloration of butterflies? Like, is it their camouflage mechanism? Is it, you know, to ward off predators? And the guy was like, nope. Uh, There is absolutely no uh, reason or scientific kind of finding as to the significance on the coloration of butterflies. And people are like, what? It's like, no, they have other things for camouflage. They have other defense mechanisms, all of these other things. There's other ways that they attract a mate. And they're like, you're saying that the beauty of a butterfly has nothing to do with its survival, no, nothing. And uh, so then we were just enjoying like, because it was made for Jesus is the reason that they are some of the most beautiful things on this planet. So I wonder if you've ever asked the question, like, what is my reason? What is my purpose? Why am I here? What, is, what do I exist for? And so often um, our lives are driven by this trying to find meaning, this trying to find purpose. And that's why, you know, we can get so caught up in our work because we think, like, I need to find my value in making money in position in a company and all of these things or hobbies or sports. And we are so restless as people. But absolutely everything in this world kind of screams the beauty and the majesty and and who Jesus is. And so this question, why was I created? You were created for Jesus and you were created by Jesus. Just as butterflies were created for Jesus and by Jesus. I mean, how many of us have been moved by sunsets? Uh, How many of us have been moved by a mountain vista or kind of the ocean or just something that we've gone like, wow, that is amazing. And Jesus is glorified in that moment because he's just so incredible, just so amazing that when we have our breath taken away by something that we've seen that was created for him and by him. And in the same way that, you know, we just kind of like break at a a newborn baby and we're just the wonders of life, how how that just came to be and the galaxies and what's being discovered. That same wow is that applies actually to us. That the supremacy, the magnificence of Jesus, this wonderful author of creation who made everything, I say that you were created for him and by him. Isn't that just incredible? Again, and this is, he goes on and it's this kind of like final kind of little thought in this first bit is that he is before all things and all things are held together by him. You know, I'm not gonna go into a science lesson, uh, but when it comes to science, they're baffled. 
Because if you kind of unpack everything and what we've come to learn about atoms, uh, protons, neutrons, electromagnetic fields, scientists do not know how everything is held together. If what we do know about science is everything should be kind of uh, flying apart from everything and uh, they don't know how the very fabric of existence is held together. And uh, they've come up with a term called the stronger force. Uh, scientists do not know what holds everything together. And so there are papers and books being written on this thing. It's incredible, right? The stronger force. And here Jesus, or Paul writes, in him all things are held together. And while I'm not saying that Jesus is physically holding everything together, maybe we just haven't found the thing in science that is, or the force that is doing it. We know that history, our lives, our hope, uh, the fact that we go to bed at night and we can sleep with peace in our hearts is because uh, we walk on an earth that was spoken into creation and into being by the power of Jesus. I was made by Him, I was made for Him. Everything is held together by Him. He creates everything. Uh, if there is a, an authority, He created the authority and He rules supreme above it. If you want to sum up these first few verses, what Paul is saying to the church and what they would celebrate is this phrase, Jesus is first. And not in the way that we have like, you know, I support like four rugby teams on a weekend and it's, uh, you know, Steve used the example of uh, my wife being my favorite girlfriend. You know, I come home to you at night and you're my first favorite kind of thing. no. There's something about Jesus where he's just not even, not even on the same page, not even in the same book. He's not even in the same category. You can't even compare the firstness of Jesus to anything. He is supreme in all things. Jesus is first. And then he goes into the second stanza of the poem, and this is so important for us. So from verse 18, Jesus is first. And then it goes on. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy. For God was pleased to have his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. There we go, that word firstborn again. But again, think position, think prototype, because it uses the phrase firstborn from among the dead. We also know that uh, there were many people who were raised from the dead. I think Jesus even rose people from the dead. If you think of the story of Lazarus, there's something different about Jesus' resurrection. See, he rose Lazarus from the dead, but then Lazarus died again. Jesus rose himself from the dead and has not died because he was the first of the resurrection. From his uh, resurrection, it went on to his ascension where he went to sit down at the right hand of the Father, victorious over our sin, over our shame, over life and death. And so this is where Paul's going, is if you wanna think about Jesus and how to navigate what other people think about Jesus, there's only one way that we uh, really view him is that he is first in everything. That the Jesus that we worship is not a God created by man. He is the author of all of creation. If you think of something that has worth and power, Jesus is greater. Jesus has more worth. Jesus has more power. Think of it this way. Jesus has power and is first 
over creation. And Jesus is first as the author and the power over new creation. Think of it like this. Jesus is first. Jesus went first. If you think of our relationship with Jesus and why I say he went first, because it just makes no sense. We say things like, while we were still enemies, Christ died for us. That while we were dead in our sin, Jesus, he makes us alive. That the whole thing about Jesus and his, we use the word supremacy, his firstness, his greatness, is that he is first in everything because of his power and what he did. But also when it comes to salvation, how he went first, how I should have died on the cross, how it was my death that uh, I needed to be punished for my sin, but Jesus goes in my place, takes my sin upon himself, dies the death I should have died and is raised again to uh, be the first of the resurrection, which is why we spoke about the certain hope that I have because I know what's gonna happen to me because Jesus went first. This is so important. For God was pleased, there it is again, to have the fullness dwell, his fullness dwell in him. Reconcile all things to himself. The supremacy of Jesus is so important to navigate everything that we have to do in life. Right, Jesus is first. And Jesus went first. And because of that, we need to think very differently about the position of Jesus in our lives. Because if the position of Jesus is first in creation, first in authority, first in power, first in beauty, first in value, that he is first and supreme in all things, the next logical step is shouldn't he be and hold that position in our lives as well? Not that we see him as a God, but the God. Not this kind of mess up of going like, well, the only way I'm going to love you is by doing things for you. And, but just that in everything, he holds the position of number one. And so I want you guys to write down this question. Is Jesus first in my life? Is Jesus first in my life? We have a term uh, in cooking or in your house. Is there anything uh, kind of left? Or what's for lunch? Uh, oh, I'm hungry. Can I eat something, mom? Uh, there's some leftovers in the fridge. Uh, in the Tupperware uh, at the back, there's some leftovers from a couple of nights ago. If you're hungry, kind of eat that, right? Leftovers. If you got invited over to supper and uh, you sat down to dinner and someone served you leftovers, um, now how are you feeling when you see them kind of kind of put some bits of pieces of like some old crusty uncovered mashed potato. I don't know how you guys put stuff like just a plate over a bowl and then you see someone do that and it's a little bit cracked because uh, the tomato sauce and the baked beans is, you know, it's that old and, uh, you know, go wild with the analogy. But someone, uh, you sit down and there is a plate of leftovers. Are you feeling offended? Yes, put your hand up. 
Let's be honest. All right, a lot of us are offended with being served leftovers. But is that not what we do to God? We use this phrase and these three words at Riverside when it comes to Jesus, our time, our talents, and our treasures. But don't we use language like, but I have to pay my bond, or like rent is due, and I've got to put petrol into my tank, and well, I've got to pay my kids school fees, and uh, we've got to, you know, buy groceries for the month. Those are important things, and yes, those are important things. But when it comes to things like our treasures, with what we're actually doing is we're going, okay, God, this is what is my leftovers. Now, how much can I give you out of my leftovers? And then when we think of our time, well, we've watched a couple of hours of sports. We've binged a series on Netflix this week. Uh, We hung out with our friends a lot. We did some ministry. You know, we went to work and, you know, oh, uh, what does God expect? I mean, I've got to put food on the table. Isn't self-care an important thing? So I must do my hobbies and kind of look good and go to gym. I've got a gym. I've got a, you know, I've got a corporate image. I've got to kind of uphold. And so what we've done is with our leftover time, we've gone, okay, God, what can I give you? And the same with our talents is we give our best to our work. We give our best to all of these other things. And then when that's done, we have our leftovers and we go, okay, God, here's my leftover treasures. Here's my leftover time. Here's my uh, leftover talents. Uh, What do you want to do? But the call is, and we're never going to be fully alive if we are not fully alive in Jesus, if he isn't first in our lives, like he is first over all creation, over everything that is in existence, Jesus is above them because he spoke them into being with his power. And so he's first there. And so he needs to be first in our lives. And so I want you to uh, think through this for a moment. Because how does my life need a change to become a direct reflection of the firstness of Jesus? The supremacy of Jesus as number one in my life. What does my time need to look like that it reflects and is without a doubt, Jesus is my number one in my life? What is my talents need to look like? What changes do I need to make when it comes to my talents and my serving and for it to reflect that Jesus is number one, he is supreme in my life, not out of my leftovers, but that if, if I think of and do an audit of my talents, it reflects Jesus is number one. What does my giving look like? My money look like? That says unequivocally, without a doubt, Jesus, you hold the position of first in my life. Not second, not third, not fourth, not fifth. But you unashamedly, with my time, with my talents, and with my treasures, you hold the position of number one, just as you are over all of creation, over 
a new creation, the church, but over my life as well, in all things, you hold the position of one, first, supreme. That's how we're gonna navigate all the pressures in this world. That's how we are going to be fully alive and kind of overcome the inoculation of all of the people around us who've kind of been burnt by kind of some Christian behavior. But when they see us fully alive to Jesus, that in every area of our life, Jesus is supreme, that we live as though he really genuinely is number one. And that is the goal. That is the challenge. I understand how hard it is. But if Jesus isn't number one, we're worshiping created things. And we've stopped worshiping the creator, our savior. And as I said, Jesus is first, but Jesus went first. And because of that, he deserves and his rightful place should be first in our lives. We're gonna end with some prayer and ministry. So I'm gonna invite Christy up onto the stage. And she is just going to facilitate some prayer for us as we kind of navigate what God has potentially said to us during uh, this brief time together. Thanks, Christy. I just get the sense that God wants us to seek him today for a soul detox. We sang earlier about our soul singing to God how great his love is and about our soul being well within us and at peace. But if our soul is our mind and our will and our emotions, then are we really there? Are we really in a place where we can receive God's love and sing about his love in our mind, will, and emotions? Are we experiencing them in our mind, will, and emotions? And then is our soul really well? And then is that really then our soul being submitted to Jesus first? Because that's when really we can be fully alive. And I think that even when we think we're okay in our mind, will, and emotions, our body sometimes tells us something different. And we all know that because we've had different symptoms of that over and over and over again in our lives. Where emotions flare up or we have tension headaches or sore muscles or back. Um, um, so we think we're at peace, but our body is not a green. Or we think we're at peace, but our mind isn't a green. Or we think we're at peace, but our will isn't submitted and our emotions are all over the place. So I think today... I just get a sense that the Holy Spirit wants to come in today and give us some reordering of our souls so that we can be more of the people that God wants us to be. Steve talked about the other week about how we as Christians don't look any different than the world, that we're nothing, our lives show nothing different. So maybe we have the right you know, taglines to encourage people or a little scripture to boost someone's by encouraging them, but it's, it's not changing us. So then how is it gonna change the people around us? And so how are we gonna look different? We need an act of God 
in our lives, in our souls. And that's why David talked to his soul so much because he was always conflicted in his soul and he needed his soul to be at peace and he needed his soul to cry out to God. And we need our, we need our souls detoxed so that we can look different and we can be different and we can feel different, we can think different and we can will differently what Jesus has to will through us. So if I can just pray for that for us and then we can sing about it so that our soul can sing of God's love and can receive God's love in a different way. Jesus, we are your people. We submit ourselves to you today. We have chosen you and we desire you and we want to live for you, but we're so messy and our souls are so chaotic and toxic and downcast. And we are so far from being fully alive in you, Jesus. But we today come to the source. We today choose to surrender to you and to submit to you in a new way. And we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would come in a way that we can experience you. Come in a way that we can feel you working inside of us, that can renew our hope and grow our strength and grow our love. And we know it's vulnerable, Jesus, but you did it first. And so, Jesus, today we surrender to you, to your authority over our mind, over our wills, and over all of our emotions. And we bring them all before you today, the things that we understand and the things that we don't understand. It's so complicated, but God, you know all of it because you created it. You are intimately involved in all of our thoughts all of our, the ways our brains work, all of the aspects of our will and the ways that we pull and push and shove and are in conflict and even our emotions stirring inside of us, the stress and the tension and the, um, the anger and the fear and the pride that make us no different than the world. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you would come and you would do some real detoxing in our souls today. The things that we know and the things that we don't know. And I pray even now, Holy Spirit, that you who first loved us would pour out your loving, cleansing touch over all of our mind, will, and emotions. Over all of the things that are in conflict to your will, 
and your love and your thoughts. And we pray supernaturally, God, that you would do a shift in us as the lover of our souls. You love our souls. You love our minds. You love our will. You love our emotions. You created them, God. And I pray, God, that you would touch those things with your holy, fiery love. Come, Holy Spirit. Come and move in us in a way that we can't fix ourselves. We need you. just we speak to our minds and we say be submitted to the thoughts of God we pray that we would think more like you Jesus that we would think your thoughts for other people God that you would renew our minds with the power of your love and your hope and your faith. And we hold our wills before you. Everything in ourselves and in our lives that we feel like matters, we submit it under the authority of you, Jesus Christ. And we pray for a greater level of your general will inside of us to be obedient, radically obedient with our will. So that you can really teach us and you can really use us. We don't want to just look the same. We don't want to be the same. Rearrange it inside of us, Jesus, right now, in Jesus' name. And we speak to our emotions and we just say, you have no power over us, in Jesus' name. And we pray, God, that you would drown out our fear with your love. That you would that our pride would be submitted to you right now in Jesus' name and that you would give us humility in the deepest parts of ourself right now in Jesus' name. That you would soften us in our emotions, that you would give us the gift of tears for the things that hurt you, that you would release us from being stuck emotionally or disconnected but that you would also release us from being ruled by our emotions that you would release us from depression in Jesus name that you would release us from stress and anxiety in Jesus name 
And I pray that you would break that chain over every single person here in Jesus' name. That we would be people fully alive and fully free to reflect Jesus in this world. That our souls can completely be under the authority of Christ and fully aligned for full life. And that's what you came to die for, Jesus. That's what you desire for each one of us. So I pray that you would give us the faith to step into that more and more and more. Thank you, God, for your life. Thank you that you love us so much that you wanna be intimately involved in every part of what you have knit together in our mother's womb because we have been fearfully and wonderfully made and the world needs to know that we're ready to step up. So I pray that you would empower us, Holy Spirit, to become more and more and more and more of that bride that Jesus desires. That the world might know that you are first and that you're real. And so today, Jesus, we choose to love you with our souls to truly behold you with our souls and know that we are fully loved and to love you back with our souls. Teach us how to do that this week, God. Let it bear such fruit in our lives that we might be people of total peace, that wherever we walk, that your shalom, your wholeness would, would go with us, that we would have the shoes of the gospel of peace. Thank you, God. In Jesus' name, we totally claim everything that you're doing in us. Amen.